and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. So this week's episode is a little bit different, and here's one of the benefits of... Uh, running your own podcast you get to break the rules or make the rules as you like there was a there was a brilliant um sketch on youtube i think it was about podcasts and how they invite friends onto podcasts and everyone laughs and say we would never invite just friends onto podcasts well this week we are breaking that rule because actually i'm very very pleased to have a very good and longtime friend on the podcast, a gentleman by the name of Douglas Waterfall. And just before you introduce Douglas, can I just make it clear that we are friends with all of our previous guests? You mean we haven't offended anyone? We don't like all our previous guests, and of course we do. <laughs> um, I'm not going to go into this because I'll get into trouble whichever I go, but I think sure. that's a fair assumption. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that most of the people we've had on are still talking to us yes. just about. Yeah. So um, D- Douglas Waterfall is a software developer and in fact is a software architect and he's been doing it for 35 years. And I have worked very closely with Douglas for, I think it was about a 10 year period mm. where we worked together on a particular product. And what, what was interesting both was what I learned from Douglas and particularly the perspectives of software engineers and how that related to product management. We also went through some really interesting business transitions. We went from what's known in the business as waterfall to agile. And I think we've talked about that in a previous episode, but for those who haven't heard, it's this idea that in the good old days, you said in two years time, I will deliver a piece of software here are the specifications go. And often what would happen is two years later, you wouldn't have finished the software or the features weren't quite what you would expected or the market had changed. So the move from waterfall to agile and and in our particular case, Scrum, that was fascinating change for us to sort of lead the teams through. We also worked uh, through the move from what was called perpetual software, where you would pay once and own it forever to subscription software. This is when when I worked at Adobe. And lastly, we moved from a concept of where the engineers were all local. I worked in Seattle at the time, and we moved to a world where it was hybrid, where there were local engineers in, in, in Seattle, but also then in India as well. So some really fascinating transitions. And what stood out for me and why I almost knew I wanted Douglas to come on the podcast the first episode we did was the fact that Douglas slightly unusual I'm probably going to offend a bunch of software developers but was unusual in the sense was Douglas was always interested to understand how things worked so why would we make these decisions how would we influence people we have spent many 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 hours and please don't take offense to this Gareth while we have spoken for many hours on these topics Douglas I think we've spent even more hours including a famous time on a train to Agra on bunk three and bunk four of the cabin where we were talking about, you know, how do we bring teams with us and what do we do? So I'm two AC, two AC. For those of you who have ever traveled in India, you will be able to picture that. So I'm very, very pleased to have joined us today. Douglas Waterfall from direct from the United States of America. He's over visiting. So that's why we've captured him. So welcome Douglas. Thank you. Amazing intro. Yes, he's, uh, people I think always worry, what are you going to say about me? And we've been friends for a long time. After Douglas got over the initial amusement of the idea that there was a podcast where we were recording some of these thoughts, actually, what became very clear was there are a number of topics that we had either touched on in the past or were interested in, in, in talking about that we want to do. So This episode is a little bit of a hodgepodge of some of those things. And maybe a different way of saying it is every week we say, if you've got feedback or ideas for the podcast, please tell us. Well, Douglas is living proof. And so we're going to touch on all sorts of ideas and aspects that we've either talked about in the past or Douglas, I know you potentially live in your sort of your more recent career as well. So let's let's start with one which is very software and I know that you're keen to sort of delve into whether this is even a military thing, but the concept of technical debt. So Douglas, probably a good place to start is, what is technical debt in the software world? 
uh, it, you, you will you will see me prevaricate a lot of these conversations because terminology really matters a lot. And part of the my interest in being on the podcast and, and all the on the years that Chris and I talked a lot was about trying to understand what these terms meant to people and, and how that frames their conversation. And the classic definition, you know, for me from the software world would be um, technically is, is, is someone usually has done something poorly in the past, their cause, they might've done it because they, they were in a hurry or um, they, they didn't know what they needed to know, or it's just some, it could be some code that, that someone wrote a long time ago and that person's long since gone. And so it's not something that's necessarily actively developed it might be perceived to be an impediment to some future change. And so that it, it's certainly perceived to be a problem. Um, and engineers are, who are been part of products where there's lots of, of dynamic change, they, engineers have opinions about technical debt, that we should, we should go fix this area. We should go, just because it's messy or dirty or stopping us from doing something cool or some kind of thing, engineers have very strong opinions and very passionate opinions about effectively work that ought to be done. And when they will communicate to you know, Chris in your role is that we need to fix this technical debt. They are basically proposing to management that something should be done. So presumably at this point, people like me not enthusiastically agree and we get straight on that technical debt. Is that, that correct? Uh, that, that has not been my experience. Am I, am I right in thinking that this is things that are in the code in a program that as you say long since you know you continue to develop the program on top of that and so somewhere in the depths of the program there is something that is not quite right is it always the case that that creates a bug in the software or is this just things weren't done the way that we do them i would say that they usually involves uh, some kind of sense of impediment so an area that seems like it's a constant dribble of problems, especially to people who weren't part of the original work. Yeah. It's like, oh, this thing broke again. I, you know, what, what is this? Why did it fail in this way? This is wacky. I don't understand it. It's, I look at this code, it, it makes, what the heck? Why did they do it that way? This makes no sense at all. And so a, a sense to sort of lump it together in this blob of it's, you know, we need to go fix this. And, and it's a different language than saying, yeah, I need to go in there and change this piece of code to fix it to make yeah. things right. It's more of a, a gen, it's a general sweep of I'm, a problem. It's 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 standing in the way of something. It's standing in the way of me understanding it. And if we just cleared that puppy out, it, it, wonderful things it, would happen. But the thing about it is, as a product manager, I am interested in going as fast as I possibly can. Yeah. I have amazing ideas how we can make the world better. And an engineer says to me, that will take you two months. And I say, two months, how could that possibly take two months? We have done something similar and that took a week, which by the way is, I know that's sort of facetiously said, but that direct quote is more common than you might imagine. And Douglas will then say to me, well, Chris, the thing that we now need to build on is, is, a, is a, a shaky foundation. And yeah. so we, we could do the work you wanted to do we could build on top of this shaky foundation, but it will take time to work around it. And more than that, if you do it again, the foundation is getting shakier. And so there mm. is this constant, this constant tension between deliver something that is clearly valuable to a customer or a business. And here's that this is the, people might be saying, well, hang on a minute, Douglas is totally right. Why don't those idiots do it? It's because when you do that, you're spending time on something that yeah. doesn't clearly deliver value. It is a mortgage. It is that thing that says I could put 200, pay off my mortgage 200 pounds today. And in five years, I will feel the benefit or I could pay a hundred pounds off today and I won't feel the benefit in five years, but five years is a long way away. So this technical debt conversation is a really, really difficult one because the motivation, the payoff for technical debt clear down, the payoff for getting it right is far down the road. Yeah. You've touched on, you, you just use the words motivation and then you switch to the word payoff. And the technical debt conversation is, you know, I work, I work with an engineer, great guy, uh, relatively young in his career. And he will say in a meeting, when are we going to fix this code? He's not talking the language of 
here is the payoff. Here's the mortgage that we're going to go do. This is going to help the business, some, you know, X many years down the path. That's why I'm proposing to get rid of the technical debt. His motivation is, is personal. It's, it's emotional, not in a negative way, but he, this thing bothers him. He wants yeah. to work in a, in a tidy area. And this is a constant source of annoyance. Like little bugs that come in are annoying because I want to work on that. And you're hauling me back to work on that. So he, he wants permission to be allowed to do, you know, to clean up that field that's overrun with a bunch of just trash. Wouldn't it be great if I clean that trash up, good things would happen. So his motivation is often based on a certain amount of faith. This will be good. Detached from cost, from actual value, yeah. is that the most important thing to do? I think this is, this is where, you know, Chris, your role comes in, which is like, what do I get for that? And this is part of the tension between, well, what's your motivation? What's my motivation? Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and one more thing, I, when I talk to this engineer, you know, I, I, I sort of see myself in him like, oh, yeah, I probably was like that when he was starting out. Because um, you don't know why people don't just do the obvious. To you, what's obvious? But when I suggested to him that it's not technical debt until a manager wants to pay for it, he didn't know what I really meant. Because he, you know, it's a mess. So, well, it's, if no one's going to pay for it, we may never change it. He saw it not so much like it was black or white, but he saw it as being why no, wouldn't you do? I cannot imagine a audience would do it. And what yeah. what's really there might be some people listening going, ah, this is just some software nonsense. I don't care. <laughs> but what's the reason why it's way more important and applicable across all these conversations? It has unexpected consequences. So typically, what will happen is a product manager will try to make the right trade off, and will say, I wish I could do more technical debt. We think about the you know the business case all these kind of things but what we often don't notice is that engineer is quite angry and that engineer who we probably don't engage with the guy on the ground thinks they're idiots and on the first day that he thinks that you know we can talk about it the first month he thinks that it's not quite as good by year one or year two you have a person who says these people are crazy. And guess what? Is he going to do his best work? Is he able to engage? And actually, this is always the thing myself and Douglas talked about is advocate in the in an appropriate way. In other words, you've we've talked about motivation and payoff and business yeah. case. Actually, many people don't have the, the ability to engage in that conversation. They get as far as you must be crazy not to do it beginning and end of story. So this is a really good example, not just of the world of technical debt, but these unexpected outcomes when we say, I made the right decision and people leave. Why are you leaving? I made a good decision. Mm. No, but your decision was crazy. So technical debt is a very real problem. And I want to hear about the military because I think there's, I suspect there is a lot of this in the military, but it's, it's, it's actually an exam example of a class of problems where you think I have logically solved this problem, why are people still angry with me? Yeah, it's interesting. As you've been talking, there's, there's three parallels that I think this sort of is analogous to with, with military command and, and military operations. And the, the first thing that occurred to me was um, when you go through campaign operations, it's pretty typical for units to do a, a cycle of operations, so a six-month tour. Famously, you know, in uh, Vietnam, the US Army did year-long tours, and then they cycle out, and people talked about, you know, Vietnam wasn't a one 10-year war, it was 10 one-year wars, and we did the same sort of thing in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, and I know having taken over from, my unit took over from two parachute regiments, two para in Sangin in Afghanistan, and we went into an area and inherited the British way of operating in that area. But it, of course, it wasn't the British way of operating. It was their way of operating. D, Com D Company, uh, you know, second battalion of the parachute regiment way of operating. And a lot of our SOPs are the same. The equipment and stuff is all the same. But they have a particular way of operating. They had a particular view of the tactical situation. They had a particular relationship with the local nationals. and we inherited their ways of working, which was somewhat different. And so that was the first sort of thing was how much of this is correcting things that are wrong and how much of this is 
an engineer's mm. perception of the way he would have done it or she mm. would have done it versus an engineer in the past and the way they've done it. The, the second one was the tension that comes particularly between young officers and senior NCOs. So a senior non-commissioned officer is somebody that's worked up through the ranks uh, as a non-commissioned uh, non-commissioned soldier up through the ranks. Uh, and certainly for me in the Marines, you know, I took over a troop and I was in charge. I was the commander of the troop, but my troop sergeant, far more experienced, far older and understands the nuances mm. and the details and the complexity of running a troop. I understand very little in fact as a, as a troop commander we've talked about that in the past but but in theory i'm there to think about how we achieve the mission how it links into the wider strategy of the campaign you know receiving orders from the company commander and the unit commander and and then applying that using the tactics and capabilities of the troop of which i rely heavily on my troop sergeant what you end up with is this sort of tension where the troop sergeant is telling you you need to do things that you think are really not that important, you know, because we're, we're fighting a war, we're, we're on operations and you're telling me about, you know, minute kit checks or, or whatever. And, and it struck me that that was kind of similar. And then I think the third analogous thing is that we've definitely talked about or, or alluded to in the past, is the tension between people wanting to do things, tactics, and then the operational art, the enabling of the system to allow people to do things, and how that links into, into strategy. Um, and there are individual teams that are given missions and tasks and go off and do things, and they, you know, you've got infantiers and cavalry men driving around in tanks and other vehicles and and then you've got logisticians and you've got signalers and you've got mechanics and recovery teams and you, all of these things come together to provide capability. But they're all focused on their individual aspects of it. But the, the trick is to get the balance right and, and nobody is going to get everything they want. There is never enough time mm. and never enough resources. And so it's a, it's a, leader, a leadership and a command challenge to balance resources to meet the mission in the best way. And effectively, everybody feels like they're not but, quite well, getting but I think I think I think that 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 final one is a very good. I think everyone will recognize that, which is don't they just understand if we did this, it would be better. Absolutely. But I, but I want to go back to the first one, because I think that's probably the most analogous to what we talked about, which is the we arrived and we adopted a set of processes and behaviors mm. because the last guys did this. Yeah. And the question I, you know, maybe it's almost a rhetorical question. Well, that's that's crazy. Why didn't you change them? And I would imagine, um, actually, I will ask you this. I suspect the reason why you maybe didn't change them as quickly as you think you should have done is analogous to why we don't do, why we're not fixed technical. So why didn't, you know, you yeah. arrived. Mm. There's this 300 page standard operating procedures we should rewrite that because it doesn't match our way of fighting. It doesn't match the what's happening. Why didn't you just go ahead and rewrite that 300 yeah. pages? Well, well, firstly, it would be great if, you know, each time you took over from another unit, there was, you know, a 300 page operating procedure. Normally it's a hot handover because wow. you're doing a relief in place or you're, you're coming in piecemeal by helicopter. So the, the quartermasters get to talk about logistics. The commanders get to talk about, the operation and command you know the troop commanders might do a quick handover yeah so it's not as simple as this is how we did it now it's your turn secondly there's a lot of assumptions as you come into an operating area about how it's going to be yeah. and you've got to be really careful that you're not changing things that are learned through hard-fought experience you come in fresh and you say well, that's crazy why the hell are you doing that and then three weeks in, you're like, ah, yeah, now I see, because all my assumptions about the enemy's tactics or the ground or so, whatever, actually, so have, I've learned bad lessons in my preparation, uh, or not necessarily bad lessons, but the wrong lessons, and you've learned the hard way through experience. And so there's, there's a having to feel through what is a way of working because of the situation on the ground, the operational conditions, what are ways of working because that's just how that unit has always done it 
and, and what do we want to keep and what do we want to change? I suspect you've missed something out here and you, you can tell me I'm wrong. Almost is, certainly. <laughs> um, I think another reason why that doesn't happen is you're busy fighting a war. So when someone says, everybody stop well, for yeah, a week, no, you're everybody right, yeah. stop yeah. for a week, yes. we're going to go away and we're going to move the weapons around and we get, it's time. So Douglas, technical debt, I think one good thing is, why does it happen and is it always bad? Well, let me, before we go down to that piece, I'm going to kind of come back to this. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a deep mining thing around the fact that this engineer stood up and said, when are we going to do this thing? There's actually a lot going on there. And and that probably doesn't come up in your world, which is like everyone kind of knows, like, you know, your job, you're the tank driver. And that's it. so the, the things that you are responsible for that you can talk about are not what the signals people are doing. So you have a sense of what you are. In in my experience with the software business, it's kind of flat, right? And, and engineers aren't trained in any sort of specialty. They are just experienced writing software at some scheme. And so they, the, the, the great strength of the software businesses, rapid change, rapid flexibility, and people are intended to sort of pick, figure out what to do and kind of do it. So they're mm. used to being very independent in some level, have independent thought. Yep. In, in, and that tension, certainly in the early in the industry, it's like, well, there isn't anyone telling anybody to do anything, just go off you go. And so there isn't any standards to compare to about whether you were a good engineer, a bad engineer, whatever. And so the, we, when we talk about things that are great strength but also great weaknesses, that one of the challenges is engineers start to want to be the product manager. Yeah. They're based, what that person was basically saying is your priorities are wrong. You should have some priorities. And so they weren't really, they don't know all your priorities. They don't know the business case. They don't know whether that's actually rational. Mm. They don't know whether that's actually the most important technical debt to pay but they felt very comfortable and passionate about, we should, we should fix this stuff. When are we gonna fix that? And that's all very natural for him to do that. And it comes from this sense of you are, you're used to operating very independently. Yeah. Someone says, well, here's this bug, this issue, and there isn't anybody else to talk to who even knows much about it, off you go. And so it's, it's a great strength of independence. That guy who is an awesome engineer, Lots. it's amazing stuff. But what we learned in our travels in, 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 uh, in other teams is that engineers, that wonderful independence is a great strength that they can start to wander. Yeah. They can start to do things that you didn't necessarily wanted and, it's, and they don't even necessarily know whether they're supposed to clear that with you. So that great independence. So it's, it's the, the challenge I think for, for you, Chris, was that when, when engineers start to, not all engineers do this. Certain engineers stand up and they say, you sh I'm giving you advice. I don't know what that happened in the military, but I'm telling you, you're not effectively for you. You're not doing it right, which is probably how you heard it, which mm. it was very narrow. But when they start trying to suggest to you other priorities, now we're having a priority argument yeah. under what values? What are we prioritizing for? And this is a very, that was kind of this technical debt thing that I think that, uh, that I wanted to touch on. And it's, it's I think it's really again to generalize it's about does the engineer and this is not about engineers being bad and that's something i learned yeah. very carefully which is and this is a strong engineer he did great work these are good people so, yeah. so, but, so but redirecting him if, to what you want him to do, do is the challenge do do they understand the business goals do they understand the constraints are they yeah are do they have the same motivations and and D douglas is shaking his head here because well yeah. because it, it's exactly the reason you said this is a highly autonomous successful person and so that is good for me because it means i have to monitor uh, monitor is the wrong word but i i have to apply less oversight and management to this person yeah. because i can just point them in a direction and they go do their magical thing and make it work yeah. whereas yes Actually, the, the answer that. is, yes, you should point them in their direction and make them do their magical work, but there's an amount of information and an amount of communication that needs to be done so they understand your constraints. Chris, I was going to do a thing and I could go red or blue. I understood, I think I understand your constraints, but can I just check red? It's going to be two weeks longer, but you might get this at the other end. Is that what you want? And that that's a challenge. And this is not about engineers and product managers this is about anything in the world you going out to your your team your your section and saying guys we're going to run over that hill boss i don't want to run over that hill you an idiot there's a machine gun at the side yeah but you don't know that in 10 minutes there will be no machine gun because the 
the airstrike is coming in. And so there's a, I think there is a, this is the, do you understand the mission? Do you have the right information? And do you have, have you been given the skills to make that decision? Yeah, I, I'm nodding vigorously because Douglas, as you were talking there about, you know, independent teams and you said, you know, in, in the military, people know their roles. You know, and, and actually the best teams work to a, to a mission but not to a prescriptive set of directions. We've talked about the value of mission command. You know, tell me what you want me to achieve and I will work out how to achieve it given the changing conditions on the ground. And, and a challenge for us, of course, is quite often whether you're, depending which bit of the military, whether you're you know, flying aircraft or sailing ships around the ocean or, or running around on the ground, you know, comms communications is always difficult. There's always dead ground. There's always mm. enemy jamming or, or whatever it is. And, and so you end up with these situations where you don't know what people are doing. And so they are, by that condition, independent at that point. And so we have to enable people to work independently, but to achieve a common goal. And one of the big problems we have in the military is trying to find the balance between creating that esprit de corps in small teams so you care about your unit you care about your cat badge you care about the army or the marines or the navy without it becoming tribalism to the point where you disparage disregard don't understand well this is you've just described a very common thing between engineering and product which is product going those engineers they don't understand what we're trying to achieve yeah and, and that care. resonates and very the, much and the, engi and the but, engineering people say those crazy guys in product and but there's, and it's but breaking there's, that down. there's i mean that division happens in engineering too i mean yeah. i worked on i mean the I worked on a product for 12 years and I joined it, it. It had already been sort of started a year or two before I joined. So it was kind of well on its way. And, uh, and it was a very complex product and very quickly teams became specialized in various sections of that product. You may know nothing about what that other team was working on. There's a general framework that sticks us all together, but you could spend, and I did spend years and years and years working in a very specialized area, extending it, planning for it, agitating product managers to support me and knew nothing about something else. And I maybe it's human nature to sort of, I don't know, disparage somebody over the hill, mm. but the idea about a common goal, in this particular example, we worked on a product that shipped every 18 months. That framework of time turned out to be, I think for us, the magic was like, well, whatever happens, you better make this date because otherwise it ain't going out the door. And so everything was oriented around this date. How far away are you? Where you're going to start? How you know how long will it take to do something? And so your sense of ownership about uh, we're going to make it thing look like this. I think I can do this kind of thing with somebody, and this is the time I have. I think I can make it work. Okay, off we go. And so that independence worked really well um, because people sort of could internalize what they wanted to do. We didn't have enough product managers, and so there was no way to micromanage us. So yeah. we were like, I need to make it look like a thing. And we'd say, I think I know, given the constraint of the system, I think we can do that. And off we went. And it was, a, it was very, very successful in my opinion. Inevitably people would overcommit. They would sign up to too much. They wouldn't finish the darn thing, but that's to be sort of expected in, in a, it, it, it encourages very strong engineers to come out of the woodwork. Strong I'd have been like, I'm the fastest engineer, but like, can you understand what the customer was looking for, what the people talked about, the politics of how you need to relate to people, the technical issues that are going to confront you, the people who were comfortable working for nine months and, and developed the trust of their engineering managers to say, yeah, that guy's going great. He hasn't checked in in a week, but it's fine. It's fine. That kind of trust was very valuable. Yeah. It is, as we've moved through the industry, now we want to talk about sprints. It's interesting. Small yeah. I was going to say, it's actually those, the skills at that time that were valuable and prized may not be the same skills that are valuable you, and prized you, now. You talk about, we need to make a feature. And if I explain to you what we, our mission is, you'll all line up. And the engineer's like, well, I mean, every day we're kind of working on your stuff. And then when are we going to go do this thing that I think is kind of important? You're like, well, let me talk about the business problem. We're not, maybe we'll never go to that kind of stuff. And so we've, we've, it's a, it, to me, I see it as a low, slow erosion, at least in my arc of time, a slow erosion of, of autonomy. Yeah. 
but yet people are still very autonomous so because they we want the guy who says we should fix this stuff. He has an opinion. Yeah. Go, go yeah, yeah. versus so, next guy who's like, just tell me what you want me to do. We need to take a quick break now, but we'll be right back. There's a piece of context which I think we should throw in here, which is the world of software development is actually incredibly young. So yeah, young. 40 years ago. So just that statement, and it hadn't occurred to me that way, which is particularly for th that piece of the world that we worked in, that we prized this kind of engineer with these kinds of skills to work in this way. And then at some magical non-specific moment, which I realized we never articulated, that was less interesting in point. In other words, today, last week, I wanted someone who I could say, go away for 18 months and give me some good stuff. Mm. And now, next week, no, I want to tell you what the good stuff is, but you're going to be just as happy and just as motivated. That was not true. So we, I think we're coming up probably for a break, but I, there's one other bit I want to touch because this is very personal to me, which is, I think it's fair to say, stop me, Douglas, if you think this is incorrect, which is there is... Technical debt, which is not in itself bad. It is, this was this was what we needed to build when we built it at the time. And now it just needs to be different. We need to refactor it and rebuild it. But there is also technical debt, which is we did it quick. We were sloppy, but for a reason. And so one of the things that I, for me at least is, and I, I, maybe part of this is your definition of technical debt is, in the world of software, we have this challenge, this juxtaposition between, I want it done quickly because I'm under pressure and I want it done well. And the risk is if a product manager is told, do you want it to take two weeks or four weeks? Yeah. I'm inclined to probably go for the two weeks. And what happens is someone like Douglas says to me, are you sure you want the two-week version, Chris? Because at some point, we're going to have to go and fix this. Yeah. And if you want to do the same thing again, it's going to cost you another two weeks. But if you let me do it for three weeks this time, it will be better. It yeah. will be more reliable. And the next time you ask me, it will take me two days. What do you want? And I've found in businesses, you would hope that someone would say, I'm going to make a very thoughtful decision about whether I'm going to do it in a way that is likely to increase technical debt versus a way that will decrease. And businesses often, it lands with the cheapest thing. Yeah. And so therefore you, you end up in businesses where the first year you do that, everyone feels slightly uncomfortable. The engineers say there's kind of a ticking time bomb there, Chris. And you say, yeah, I get that. But look, we, we launched, we shipped, everyone was happy. Well done us. Year two, the same guys are looking a little bit more serious. And I'm a little bit disappointed because, Douglas, that thing last week that you said would, we should take yeah. two weeks took a month. You were late, Douglas. And by year three, you've got engineers jumping up and down and firing off emergency flares going, this thing is going to stop in a minute. And all of a sudden, the feature that two years ago took me a week, and I've seen this, senior people say, this used to take a week. Why is yeah. it now taking two months? And the answer is because decisions you took three years ago that were innocent at the time and on yeah. their own, that became a habit and we're now paying the piper. So I don't know, what's your... So um, uh, we, we tell simple stories and they are true, right? But they're not the only story. So that's a very simple story, which is I'm sure it happens a lot. Um, another story is uh, things are built according to what was understood at the time toward a, a future that was probably fairly immediate. And so you think, well, what do you want us to do? And the answer is, well, I just need to have this thing, you know, turn the light on or turn it off with this kind of thing. Okay, I can do that. Now you, now it's five years down the line, you want to go extend it to something else. The answer is, well, that wasn't how it was built. Yeah. And you think, oh, is that technical debt? Well, were we, were we supposed to have thought ahead about that? What did you want to do? And so we adopt ways of putting things together um, and that's reasonable. And we, we secretly sort of imagine that that stuff is flexible and morphable. And the answer is, yeah, it's not. So I actually work on a 25 year old product right now. And 
the, the state of software engineering and the, 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 the speed of, of computers and tools we could use were very different than they are right now. And yeah. so they made very interesting decisions from my perspective. Now, I know why they did it. Now you're like, I can't believe they did that. But that's what they had to do 25 years ago. Yeah. Okay, from their perspective, and actually some of these engineers are still around on the team, which is very unusual. Most people would be gone. But they, they made very rational, reasonable decisions that now 25 years down, you say, I wish they'd done make it a different decision that might've been a bit more flexible because then we could build on this thing. But now we're yeah. kind of stuck with their decisions. I wish it was different. Well, the, the, this, and, but we point at people and say, this is bad. And you yes, think, well, this is, this is you, you, you taught me something incredibly important that has served me well, which is ask why. Yeah. And you, you know, you, you, you touched on this earlier with the military, which is when I see something that I go, that is stupid. And everyone around me is jumping up and down. The pitchforks are out, the torches are lit. And I remember Douglas's voice back and saying, go ask some engineers why we yeah. did that. And all of a sudden you will that. either learn, yeah. oh, there's a big landmine yeah. there yeah. and they edged around it, or you will be taught one of your predecessors said, get it out the door. The, the why yeah. is an astoundingly yeah. powerful question. It, it is. And I, I think there's this, again, analogous to a lot of what we've talked about in terms of aligning capability tactics to strategy. And you know, there are very rarely people who are malign or deliberately disruptive or or bad actors within your organization. So like you say, if, if there's something that seems stupid, there's probably two things there. Either there's an assumption about what they need to do, that they need to be aware of something else. They're doing something that is in the context of the mission stupid, but they don't know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or there is something you don't know that they do, which is why they have to behave in that way. And, and this comes back to yeah. all of this conversation yeah. has largely been about you know, engineers not knowing the wider context. But yeah. of course, we're starting to get to the point of managers, product developers, commanders also need to have enough technical knowledge to understand why things are well, to be able and, to make and, those and if they decisions. even if they don't have it i mean i i feel quite strongly I, I get young product managers coming to me saying i've been told i'm not technical enough and i get a bit twitchy about it, which is i don't need to be technical if i am technical that's helpful actually why don't i maybe need to be technical i just need to be good at asking questions yes, and listening yeah, yeah that yes. that gets me out of it anytime because yeah. there's a bunch of stuff i will never know about development but if i know how to ask the question and i build the relationship yeah, with yeah. a douglas and i say douglas this seems stupid and but douglas, you, also, you also have to be able to deconflict the the douglas challenge with the margaret challenge 100%, in hr 100%. and the steve but, challenge in finance and the and in my world it's the logistics versus the well it's defense it's versus, those idiots don't ever bring the ammunition up at the right time good you should go ask what why why yeah. because you might find out something that surprises you or you might find out not saying oh it turns out if we only get this ammunition it'll come when we want but not and so, of course all of these things come back to aligning activity to the mission which has to be aligned to the strategic objectives because the things that get measured are the things that get done so if the pressure is on the command to you know meet a timeline then that compounding problem that is going to continually irritate and slow things down I'm not going to care about fixing it today because I'm under the pressure you, to hit the time. And this is yeah. and this is the point where all yeah. of a sudden we don't hit the beaches. So and when all of a sudden you wind it all the way back, it was because four years ago someone said, uh, you know, we should probably change the oil in the landing craft every week. But you know, we're yeah. really busy and we're going to use the landing craft. Let's do it every month. And then it, I, it's and we've but we've talked many times on this podcast. We've used historical military examples of. You know, the operational art of understanding strategically what you're trying to achieve and then working back from that in order to start to understand what you need to do now to get to that far off thing, accepting you're not planning in minute detail, you are simply setting the conditions 
to go on a journey towards the goal and you're going to hit problems as you go back to my mountain analogy you're going to hit problems as you go and that's where your experts in their field are going to solve those problems and you need to give them direction as to how much latitude they have are we going to spend an extra week fixing this problem or am i going to understand that i'm taking risk don't fix it this time but recognize that it's going to give me more of a problem next time and therefore as long as it's on my risk register as long as i understand that it exists and i am deliberately making that decision and and communicating because i because i think i mean i think what you've just described we you know i know there were some military references but you could apply that in the software Mm. world the final piece of this which is what you know this is why douglas here here on the podcast is we've talked so much about communication to the point where perhaps people are a little bit like blah 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 communication for this to work it has to be genuine real engagement and communication so i hope you don't mind me telling this story douglas but the the first was it a good one the first the first (laughs) time i met douglas was on on a team I'd been made the product manager for this this product. So I was the guy that was gonna decide effectively what the engineers were gonna work on. And Douglas was the architect for the product. And Douglas came to my office, knocked on the door and there was this goofy young product manager, clearly hadn't done this much before. And I was product number number 28 for you of goofy product managers. And, And Douglas walked in and sat down and folded his arms and said, so what are we going to do? And luckily at that point, I knew, I don't think he's just asked me what we're going to do. I think there's a whole, there's a whole long conversation about, uh, there are many challenges that I face. Are you going to help me and work with me or not? And what we did over time was that made us, I think, very successful was we built a genuine relationship where we understood and engaged and empathized. And, and this, is the, this was what I said in the introduction. Douglas said, you are making some decisions that I don't understand and I think might be crazy. Let's talk about that. And I did the same. And so that's why Douglas walks with me every day in my job, because there's a voice, an American voice in the back of my head going, (laughs) you should ask why. Yeah. Did you did you spot what they just said to you? So communication isn't just I have got a meeting with an engineer. Hello. I respect engineers. It is truly, these are the people that will save your ass. But there's a, there's a really interesting sort of juxtaposition between what you said earlier, Douglas, about teams being allowed to just go off and, and do what they need to do and versus being micromanaged effectively. Um, and that where you're talking about good communication, where there is mutual understanding of each other's problems, each other's world. And respect and credibility. And, Those two words are important. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that is a challenge because finding the balance between regular communication, laterally, not just between mm. managers and, and doers, but laterally between different teams across an organisation, regular communication without it becoming just a chaotic ideas fest, without it becoming people telling each other what to do, micromanagement, allowing people to work independently to solve problems, but having the wider situational awareness to understand context of their problem within the wider mission of the organization is a real challenge. And this is where the, the great example of this going well for me is General Stan McChrystal with Special Operations Command in 2004, and I've mentioned this before, where the operators, the door kickers, you know, the, the guys you see with big beards and bulging muscles, they didn't understand the role of intelligence. Intelligence mm-hmm. is simply the geeks who tell me the answers. They tell me where to go mm-hmm. and who to mm-hmm. kill. Mm-hmm. The intelligence staff the analysts, the collectors, the managers didn't understand the role of the door kickers. They're just meatheads, knuckle draggers, you know, that deliver violence. I'm an analyst. I do, you know, science and technical stuff and you know, intelligence. So they're, they're knuckle draggers and wit. And, and what Stan McChrystal did was say, right, where are my best door kickers? Right, you are now working with the intelligence team. And they're like, oh, I've got to go and sit in a, <laughs> you know, in an analyst 
Excel, somewhere behind computer screens, it's geeky, it's boring. Right, where are the best intelligence analysts? Right, you're going out on the helicopters with the door kickers because mm. you're going to learn their job and you're going to bring it back and they're going to learn your job and they're going to bring it back. And really, really quickly, what happened was these two organisations earned a mutual respect for each other's world because they realised, I can't do what they do. Mm. I couldn't do that day in, day out. I can't do what you do. I just don't understand it. I'm not clever enough or, you know, what you're doing with these computer software is incredible. What you do in terms of jumping out of helicopters and facing the enemy and climbing mountains, you know, it's incredible. And they bring this mutual respect. And the next time they have an intelligence requirement, they understand how to phrase it. They understand how to ask it. The next time they see a piece of information on the ground, they think, that would be gold dust mm. to these intelligence analysts. Let's mm. take that back with us. And, and it culminates with SEAL Team 6 doing the Osama bin Laden raid into a bottom mm. So I'm going to talk about it from the film because it's you know a film and we can talk about that. In the movie, they land on the objective is to kill or capture Osama bin Laden. That is the mission. And yet they do that in the first 15 minutes. And then they spend another 25 minutes on the ground, really? very high threat, throwing laptops and CDs ah. and taking biometric samples of the dead bodies and, and all of that stuff. They spend another 25 minutes on the ground because by this time they've learned SOCOM, Special Operations Command, has learned the value ah. of intelligence. And so operators are doing intelligent work on behalf of the intelligence analysts. The intelligence analysts also know how to focus their questions and focus their analysis in support of the operators. And Stan McChrystal you know, transformed this organization in a matter of years to go from a Cold War model of special forces do hostage rescue, they do capturing weapons of mass destruction, mm. and they do deep reconnaissance behind enemy lines to fighting counterinsurgency warfare, which is fighting this amorphous, you know, asymmetric thing that you can't just find and kill the leader. And it's just a brilliant story of how the vision of one man pulls together a team and starts to overcome these internal frictions and create that mutual trust, create that mutual understanding that leads to efficient operations in complex conditions. So I'm now going to try and take it from SEAL Team 6, killing Osama bin Laden to a software and product world. I don't think I'm going to do this well. But there is a direct analogy, and the direct analogy is bringing engineers to meet with customers. It is staggering how unusual that is, where, mm. where both engineers quite reasonably say, it's, why do I need to go and speak to these guys? You, you just tell me what they want. And likewise to product managers saying, you should take some engineers with you. And the answer is, yeah, but do I need to? Because they might say something crazy to a customer or they might get the wrong idea. And it is that idea of those two teams working together and an engineer saying, I was in the, I heard what they said, Chris, what if I didn't give you this, but what if I gave you this? And we did that again. We were yeah. very lucky. The team we had, we, we worked very closely where engineering, product, testing, and design went together as a team. And it, 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 it's funny how this is, you know, we, we, we talked about, started with technical debt, but it reflects all the things we talk about in all the episodes, communication, leadership. It's one person who says, guys, this is what we're going to do. It is about empowerment. It is about breaking down silos. It is about diversity. All of these things, that's how you make it work right. So uh, I, I think well, uh, it, 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 our background, Chris and I, that our, our challenge, and I, I, sort of, I think about you know, the, the military parallels, and I went, that's kind of interesting. We're sort of doing the same thing. We had no idea, which is that we were, we were having to manage a team that was geographically and you know, 12 time zones away. Yeah. Which is really hard, and and what was one of the things that's hard about it is you can't just walk into their office and ask them a question, and so um, and and it's and we would go travel out there. We'd visit you know three or four times a year, and we would travel as a team, as the two of us. And what, I think what we discovered over time is that we had very different um, 
perceptions and the way that we dealt with the world, right? And so I'm an engineer, I see things differently. And, and Chris, you know, the park manager think differently. And we were sort of became unified in how do we get the teams that are far away from us to do the things that we want them to do? It seems like a very simple, simple thing. That's what yeah. it became. And like, we didn't know, we had to kind of figure this out. And what I think that the one reason it worked so well for us is that by spending the time together and working through the problems together, we learned this trust that people have a different, you know, we brought together different perspectives on things. And I remember a very, a very interesting meeting we had where we went and talked to the team. Chris asked a question, what am I going to get this thing? And they said, blah, blah, blah. And we came back to the bar at the end of the day. And I said, you aren't going to get what you wanted. And, and I and looked and very you were, surprised. You were very, very, you were very, was, very angry. And I think I said, I think Douglas, you're fine. Yeah. And I asked them and they yeah. said, I would get this thing. And I told him, Go, go back tomorrow and ask this question. And he did, and they were like, mm, yeah, no, that's not gonna happen. And then he was, he was, you were, so that, what was interesting is that what I discovered it is, I, the reason I think it worked really well was that it, it, you start to become, you get a sense where you get to be the authority. I know a lot about engineers, let me tell you what I think about that. And then there's the part where you get to be, you don't know. And so to, to respect, Chris and his role about talking about customers and talking about the business and talking about how we do these kind of things. That was the thing that I wasn't that good at. So I'm like, well, so he sort of brings that to our little team. And then I could talk about engineering and challenges and not that I actually had the answer and what to do, but it's like, well, here's how we can maybe deal with these people. Here's how we talk to this person. And so we could bring very different skill sets, but by blending them, we became even more powerful. And the discipline of having to not being able to see people all the time made us we had to plan. We had to think about it and then come back. And we hardly ever ate dinner at night because we'd be so exhausted by the by the conversations over there. But we would be, we'd review the day. What did you hear? What did, what did this person say? I don't know the answer to that question. What about this idea? And it was really, I thought that was the most interesting things about our time together is that someone who has a different understanding, maybe it's your parallel is that, you know, the intelligence versus the door kickers. Wow, you guys have this cool thing I wish I could do. But I think that's, I think that's really, really worth emphasizing, which is we all, you know, people listening to this podcast are obviously bright. You were supposed to, you were supposed to agree. Um, But but I think we're we're all natural human and we would go, do you understand the motivations of the people you work with? And you go, of course I do. I work with them. I know them every day. But I think that those two examples, which were Mm. very, very good were, we all have different lenses through which we see things. I have a product manager's lens. I have a, a history that has brought me to that point. And that is a very different history to a lens of an engineer that is very different lens. And, and it is, you know, over time, you hope to build that ability to see through other people's eyes. But in our case, the thing that made us successful was I had someone next to me to say, they don't agree with you, Chris. And so what do you mean? They, they smiled at me. They said, yes, no, I know my engineering colleagues and they don't agree with you. We, we had a really, there was another really good example we had. We talked about this idea of going from, from waterfall to agile. And so I, I you know, we, this was one of our trips to, to our Indian colleagues. And we said, um, great news, everyone. We're going to do this cool thing called Scrum. Oh, it's going to be awesome. Stony faces in the room and we're like, that's either awesome or not good. I don't know. And I said, let me tell you the reasons why Scrum is brilliant. We're going to build better software for customers. We'll, it'll be faster. It'll be better. Blah, all these reasons. And we went to the bar. This was, uh, this. I mean, Douglas has talked about it. This was, truly was our inflection point. We'd literally go back to the bar, order Merg Tika specifically, <laughs> Uh, have two uh, beers. It was a was it a singer? Uh, you shouldn't be product placement. Go ahead. Sure. Um, <laughs> and, and I w- and we would say, what did you hear? And so I would say, well, Douglas, we told them why they need. This is a huge upheaval, you know, yeah. guys. This is what you were trained to do, and some idiot with a British accent is saying, forget that, at least something different. And Douglas said, no, this is n- that this team did not look you in the eye and say, we are ready to go on this journey with you. And I said, okay, I, I, I'm smarter now. Why? This is not like you're wrong. This is why. And Douglas said, you haven't told them how this is going to help them. Yeah. You told them how this is going to help you and the organization. It's not that they're against that. 
but you didn't talk about how that's going to help them. So we went back the next morning. And I talked to them. Another meeting. <laughs> and Douglas said, you know how those product managers do crazy things and midway through a period of work, they get you to change. Scrum protects you from that. Some, some nudges and looks between people. They are crazy sometimes. Um, you know how product managers don't actually really tell you what they want. And then when you give them something, they look sad because it, it isn't that thing that they failed to describe to you. Not. And so by the end of it, that that relationship where through your eyes you could talk about it, we were able to say, actually, what will make this team successful is not to lead with why this is good for Chris. This is why Douglas says, I know you guys, I yeah. work with you. This is why it's yeah. good for you. It, 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 uh, it, it, the pitch wasn't that it's going to be a magic answer, but it was, hey, here's an opportunity to get more of maybe what you want. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be a change. It's going to be difficult. But here's, here's how it might work for you in ways you might care about. And that was, that was resonance. And we all knew that when you have a hope of a new kind of development process, it's all going to be wonderful. Like any software development process, it only is as good as it, how well it gets executed. But you know, there's things that engineers and QE people don't really like, but they just tolerate. And now you say, here's a process that actually might help them make their life somewhat more better. Hey, I'm actually, I'm willing to try that. And the promise you wanted them was, let's give it a try and maybe it'll get you what you want. And we, we were very lucky. It was an extraordinarily talented team. They were super, they were but, but there was a last piece there, which I think is good for everyone, which is there was credibility. Yeah. So I would stand up and say, the business needs to do this and we need to go this direction. And Douglas would stand next to me and slightly behind me and imperceptibly would nod and they would go, <laughs> if Douglas thinks this is, he's one of us. And so, yeah. I mean, I've made it sound more cynical than it is and it wasn't meant in that way, but Douglas enabled the relationship we had yeah. and the trust we clearly it's had a, with one another yeah. allowed me to say things that perhaps on my own, I wouldn't have been able to say. So I, that was another really important example where for, for you to stand up with your sergeant and say, gents this is what we're going to go and do they're all interested to know if the sergeant thinks you are crazy oh, yeah. and if yeah. the sergeant goes like this is what we're going to do lads and this yeah. is let me tell you why this is a good idea yes. that's another really important thing and it's this it's this relationship building and one one thing we we haven't actually said this time around but i think it it is important which is you can kind of fake some of this you know Nothing i don't wrong. i don't Look, those those engineers are crazy. But you know, if I go and buy buy Douglas a couple of drinks and he thinks I'm a nice chap, we can probably he can do the thing where he stands behind me and nods. That is so limited. You, the reason why it worked for us over many years was because there was genuine trust and people could see it. People can smell that stuff a mile off. Oh, yeah. We had people yeah. who came to our teams where would say would say the same words as us in the same way and the teams were like you're out to for yourself this is not going to benefit any of us so th that 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 underlying thing is you cannot fake this stuff the teams need to believe you and go on that journey and that can only happen when you're consistent predictable honest you, you as douglas said you know you you said that brilliantly just now which is what we said to the engineers was this is going to be hard yeah. we are going to we we believe you now because it would have been easy for you to say this is going to be fantastic as many people yeah, had done yeah, in the yeah. past. And, and I think this is you know, bringing this sort of to a close. It's, it's fundamental to how you lead organizations, how you lead teams. So what you've talked about there is the ability to communicate in a way that is credible, that is honest, that is relatable, that is consistent and that aligns their goals, their motivations mm. to the goals and, and objectives and needs of the organization. And where it doesn't, you're being honest with them. Yeah. Sometimes there are times where you have to say, actually, this is this is going to impact you in a in a negative way, but but here's the reason we're doing well, it. And, and as long as that's not the norm. Well, I was going to say, and sometimes you can even say, I'm even willing to admit this is a stupid thing, but here's why we're going to execute this stupid thing. 
oh, yeah. excellently. Yeah. yeah, you can you can do that. But you're right. You're yeah. you're buying credit where which we had where the teams would say not not necessarily stupid things, but people yeah. would say this sounds scary. Yeah, I don't know how to do it. I don't know if we can do it. But we're willing to go with you on the yes. journey, and that, and that you takes could, you, you, it, you could have a whole other podcast about what's it look like when they don't believe you. Yeah, because you talk about we just communicate more. I just need to get you to talk to a customer. I just need to get you to. I need to explain to you the business case. And and I speak of engineers. I'm sure there's a military parallel, which is like we just got to communicate a lot. And then, how do you know it's working? How do you know that it's actually that they've got it? And that becomes, to me, that's the interesting thing. Where, how do the behaviors people manifest to indicate they are aligned with you or like they really are not aligned at all? And we'll, we'll just communicate more. Have another meeting. It's not we, working. We, we well, could do another top 10, which is I how think, do you know when people don't believe you? I well, think I, I think that, that is a wonderful segue into <laughs> the next podcast we're going to do. So let's, uh, let's draw that to a close there. But Douglas, thank you ever so much for traveling yeah. all the way. <laughs> thousands of miles the word needed to be said exactly (laughs) uh yeah so thank you for traveling all the way just to be on our podcast uh it's very dedicated it's a pleasure once again uh we want to hear what you think about it so please do reach out to us we're on twitter at battling with biz biz with a z and we also have email at battling with business at gmail.com. And remember, we're looking for more people willing to travel 4,000 miles just to be with us, to bang their fist on the table and talk about things like technical debt. So if you are that person, let us know. I did not bang. You didn't bang? You didn't bang. Metaphorically, with passion. (laughs) Uh, No, I think that's it for now. But um, thanks for joining us. And we will speak to you all again very soon. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Cheerio.